Well, good morning. Glad to be here with you. We've been uh, looking forward to being here this weekend at Bridgewater Vessel. We are excited about what God is doing in our church and excited about what is happening here at this campus as well. My name is Josh, and I am one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be with you today. With me is my wife, Kristen. Our other four kids are serving uh, at another Bridgewater campus this morning, and so uh, they're doing their thing, and we're doing ours, but uh, anyway, I'm glad to be here. We are in our Be Real series from the book of James, uh, really launching on this idea of the Be Real app, and I am curious, after last week, are there any of you brave enough to admit that you went ahead and downloaded the app after hearing about it last week? Okay, you dug your heels in, you're not having it, you're not doing it. All right, that's just fine, that's just fine. Uh, really built on this app that allows you no filters and no retakes, its goal is to present your life as it really is, just the way it would appear in one picture. And so uh, that's what we're doing, no filters, no edits, and no retakes, though I would Admit, and I think you might admit along with me that there are times in our lives that we wish we had edits. We had the ability to redo. In my day uh, growing up, going to date myself a little bit here, with VCRs, it was to uh, rewind and tape over. Right? You could tape over something you had previously recorded onto that VHS cassette. There are some things that you just can't edit out, even though you wish you could. And I would say that even when I was in seventh grade, uh, there was, a, there was a, a young man I was trying to become. I, I was surrounded by a bunch of great athletes. I grew up in the state of Indiana, and so basketball was our thing. And uh, we talked about our vertical leap and uh, what we were able to do on the basketball court. And as a seventh grader, I wasn't very good at basketball. But by the time I got to be a senior in high school, I still wasn't very good. <laughs> so this is my uh, driveway and our... our uh, garage back here. And you can see, by the way, I spent $150 on these shoes. Uh, as a paper boy, I could afford it. And I just wanted to impress my friends and anyone that I could possibly show with my vertical leap and basketball abilities. The problem is, this photo has been edited. All right, so let's see the next one. I want to point out here the weird shape of this photograph. Uh, th these came out on a four by six photo. And this is not four by six. And you might ask, what's this little angle here? What are we getting at here? Uh, really, what is in this blank space here is uh, some cinder blocks. And on top of those cinder blocks, a trampoline. So I don't, re I don't even remember who took the photo for me, but uh, I got a running start with a basketball in my hands, and I jumped off that trampoline. And it's, now it's kind of depressing because that's a... That's as high as I could get, even with cinder blocks and a trampoline. And so let's see the next one. There's this whole other part of the photo that's supposed to go on that shows you the fact that I'm a phony, I'm a fraud, I'm a fake, it's a scam, it's not real. Uh, but that is, that is what I wanted to do. Uh, and I would say that uh, this was a giant waste of time. I don't know that I gained any respect or credibility for it because once I got on the basketball court, it was pretty clear that wasn't happening. And now that I'm 41, that will never happen. So I'm pretty confident about that. But it is true that there are just parts of our life that we would like to avoid. We'd like to unremember them. We'd like to conveniently cut them out and forget them. We'd like a do-over. And one of the things that we talked about last week that we cannot edit out of our lives are trials and difficulties. Inevitably, these are going to come into our lives 
things that we don't want, things that we'd rather do without. Sometimes uh, a bunch of us, uh, you know, five Bridgewater pastors preached last week and everyone chose their own difficulty to talk about. Mine was scummy jobs that my dad made me do. And honestly, as I was talking about the scummy jobs, looking at some of the men and women in the room, I thought to myself, there are people who just kind of do that stuff in their sleep. It's easy for them. They, they enjoy it. But for me, I didn't. And so that was really tough. Um, but another thing that you cannot edit out of your life is not only trials, but also temptations. Temptations strikes us as another one of those things that it's, that's just going to come into our lives and we can't really avoid it. You can't escape it. So what we're going to do today, like last week with trials, is rather than try to ignore temptations and, and wish them out of our lives or Photoshop them out, we're going to lean in and try to understand them. Because if it's something that we're all going to have to face, then we had better do a really good job understanding what temptations are how they work, and how we can respond in the face of temptation. And ultimately, the goal will be to overcome it. We'll be looking at what real faith looks like in the face of temptation from James chapter 1. So you can, you can begin navigating on your device or your Bible to James chapter 1. Before we do, though, because we talked about trials last week and we're talking about temptation this week, I think it's helpful to help us understand what's the distinction between a trial and a temptation because some of you might have found that even in the middle of your trial, you were tempted. Trials enter our lives and they're difficult to process, they're difficult to handle, sometimes they're difficult to endure but there are other trials that hit us a different way where our desires are a little bit more exposed or maybe a little bit more involved in the situation. And so what I would say is this. When a trial becomes a solicitation to sin, it then serves as a temptation. When a trial, a difficulty from the outside, causes you to, to drift or lean or choose sin, it has now become a temptation. And that's what James addresses in chapter 1, as we'll see. But if we're going to talk about sin, too, we probably ought to understand what sin is. If sin is the thing we're supposed to avoid, let's just make sure we have the same ground zero this morning and that we all understand what we're talking about when we say the word sin. So sin is any violation of God's standard of righteousness in any way. Sin is what makes us estranged from God and spiritually dead. It's what causes us to love ourselves more than we love others. Sin is the source of our selfishness and our pride. It's the reason for pain and suffering in the world. It infects all of us and we're all drawn to sin because we are sinners by our very nature. And then we compound it because we are sinners then by our choice. Look at Psalm 51.5. It says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The psalmist, in this case David, is writing about, I was born a sinner. I was conceived a sinner, estranged from God, at odds with God, not at peace with God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So although we do have the same ground zero this morning in terms of our relationship to God, I want to make sure that we understand why. It's because of our sin. It's because we were born broken people into a broken world. And this is why we have trials. This is why we have temptation. So let's, let's just try to be real with each other this morning. And maybe just admit, you don't have to raise your hand or say it out loud, but I don't think all of us 
do what's right all the time, do we? Beyond that, I'm not even sure that all of us want to do what's right all the time. Oh, I wish I could say that I did. But I don't. There are times I just want to do what I want to do. There's something that feels natural about it. And I think we share this in common. And sometimes the difficulties in our lives do cause us to drift toward or to begin to desire sin. And it's interesting that the very word that James uses to introduce trials last week in the first few verses of this chapter is the very same word he's using in the text we're looking at today, except this time it's called temptation. So please understand, he wrote this, and James wrote this in a different language, and he used the same word. And we say trial. We look at that same word in the passage we're looking at today, and we say temptation. Interesting. Interesting. So I think that's a tension we're going to have to wrestle with this morning together as we look at temptations and see why and how they are different. I think this passage gives us some clues. So now, You're there in James chapter 1. Let's go ahead and look at it. Look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Here it is. Tempted, tempting, tempted, tempt. That word is the very same word used to, uh, to that we get trials from. But here's what he's saying. When tempted... So truth number one about temptation that we've got to learn today is this. Temptation is a reality I can't escape. He doesn't say if tempted. If you're tempted. No, he says when you're tempted. In other words, expect it. It's assumed that this is going to happen. So when it does, here's how you need to respond. You cannot edit temptation out of your life. You could try. You will fail. Temptation is coming for us. But James says, be careful, they don't come from God. Last week we learned that trials are introduced into our lives from God to grow us and to mature us and to fully furnish us. And now James uses that same word and says, hey, temptations are coming, but these are not from God. So God does send us tests in the form of trials to strengthen us, but he does not ever, listen to me, he does not ever lead us to sin. That is never God's design, that is never God's intention to lead us to sin. It is only the sin inside us that hooks us to the sin outside of of us. God's purpose is to work good in us, to make us more mature and complete, to handle life's difficulties. So God's tests come from the outside, but these temptations that James is now talking about come from within. So how do we reconcile the testing from the outside and the temptation from the inside? I think it's simply this. If we're not careful, the testings from the outside may become temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves doubting God questioning his goodness, questioning his love for us, questioning his presence with us, resisting his desire for our life and pursuing our own desires. And James confronted us last week in verse 5 that when this happens and you lack wisdom, when you can't see the good in a trial, when you can't understand that God is at work through your difficulty, ask him for wisdom. And he will give it to you and help you see it the way you need to see it. We don't often do that because when trials come, what do I do? I scramble for the things that are most important to me at the moment. And if that's comfort or pleasure or affirmation or praise, 
I will just grab that. And so we don't ask God for wisdom. And at this point, now we're in difficulty. Our desires are being raised to the surface. And Satan now has an opportunity to give us a temptation. But this, this leads to more questions. If I'm tempted and it has to do with the sin inside me, is it, is it wrong to be tempted? Should I even feel bad that I'm tempted at all? Is temptation sin? And if so, what do I do about that? If not, then what is it and how do I understand it? When does temptation turn to sin? And is sin inevitable? Am I just going to keep doing this every single time? Or is there a way out? I think that though all of us experience temptation, I'm pretty confident based on my own personal experience and interaction with a bunch of people in church, we don't know how temptation works. And I think that it's one of the pieces we need if we're going to overcome temptation and fight with the weapons that God has given us to fight with. So we're going to examine temptation up close, zoom in, and find out whether or not this thing has a kill switch. So let's keep reading in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, don't blame your temptation on God. It's not from him. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Let's go to the next verse. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So here in these two verses is the second truth about temptation. And it gives me so much hope. Because here it is. Temptation is a process I can stop. Temptation is a process I can stop. Maybe you can relate. So often the time between when there's an opportunity to sin and the time I actually sin, it's lightning. It's zero time passes. I see, I want, I act, I get. Ha, there it is. Anybody with me on that? We're just like creatures of instinct, creatures of habit, and we just snap right into the old ways of doing things. There are other times, though, when there's far much more time in between when I'm first presented with an opportunity to sin and when I actually carry it out. It seems a slow motion process and I can either pull out or I can keep plotting and scheming and manipulating my way in order to get what I want. Whether it's instantaneous on average for you or spread out, it works still the same way. So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom way in there on this process of temptation that James gives us to figure out what we can do about it. So, Here we go. Let's start with the process. Desire. This is number one. This is, sin has a life cycle, okay? It has an inception and then it has a completion. And here's step number one. James gets real by revealing to us that not only is temptation coming for us, but temptation is coming from us, specifically from our desires. Each person is tempted by their own evil desire. Now, I think it's important to point out sometimes our desire is for something good. We don't always want bad things. Is it wrong to want to pass a test or an exam? No, not at all. But if you cheat in order to pass it, well, you've tempted yourself. You've sinned. Is it wrong to want to eat something? Is it wrong to be hungry? No, but if I steal your lunch, I've sinned. The temptation to cheat on that test is an opportunity to accomplish something good, 
passing a test in a bad way. All right, so I think it's important that sometimes what we want is good. Sometimes our desires, these do not have to be sinful things. They could be desires for very good, valid things that we all find ourselves wanting and are actually designed and wired to want. But you and I, we're crooked sometimes. And sometimes what we want is in fact wrong, is in fact sinful. The word James uses for this desire is a word that really communicates an extremely strong desire, but not necessarily an evil desire. I think our translators in the New International Version that we're looking at put evil desire there because that's where we normally go with it. But even Jesus had desires like this. But a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire takes control over us. And Satan uses our desires against us. So a temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a potentially good thing in a bad way outside of the will of God. So desire is step one of the process, but it doesn't end there. Desire turns into deception. Any hunters, trappers, or fishermen in the room? Two, good, excellent. I'm not going to use that illustration anyway. How many of you have ever dealt with mice? Mice in your house. Mice in your garage. Okay, oh, all right, we've got the right one. Uh, in the places that Kristen and I have lived, we have dealt with our fair share of mice. In one slightly more recent place, we killed four, I think it was 42 mice in two weeks' time. How? You don't have that many traps. So we had traps, and then we borrowed a farm cat. And I'm telling you, we did. We borrowed a farm cat and let that cat live right in the house. And that cat was awesome. But these mice were everywhere, on the countertops, in the cabinets. I'm chasing them down the hall with a stick because they're just, not the cat, the mice. They're everywhere. But if you've ever had the opportunity to watch a mouse approach a trap, it's a pretty interesting and vivid picture of what James is describing here. He uses hunting, fishing, baiting, luring kinds of terms to talk about how this happens. Something good, peanut butter, catches the mouse's attention. They smell it, they see it, all their friends tell them about it, and they decide they have to go get in on it. So they do, they scurry up there, and they come, you've seen this, right? They come right up to the trap, they're sniffing, they're going slowly, they want to make sure that no one's going to pounce on them, the cat's not around, and they just stick their head ever so gently, and the lure is so intoxicating. They take that bite and drop just a little bit of weight on the lever, and that's all they remember. They can't tell the story beyond that. Because it gets them. It just gets them. James says, our desires, step one, drag us away and entice us. They function like bait on a trap. They present as things that we want, things that are good, not always bad things. Let me keep going with some other suggestions. Rest, pleasure, attention, praise, affirmation, companionship, relief, Fine, they're fine things. But they grab our attention and pull us in. We move toward the object of our desire, fixated on what we believe we'll get out of it, never thinking what it might take from us. And once we've locked in on the target, 
like that mouse did on the peanut butter. Done deal. Done deal. And even though our sinfulness and brokenness is evident this far in the process of temptation, James actually says sin hasn't even happened yet. It's next, but this is only deception. Step three, then, would be disobedience. You can throw that third arrow up there. you go. Thank you. It's at this point where temptation turns to sin, and we think, we say, we do, we're motivated by what God says is wrong. And James moves from a hunting, fishing analogy to another one that we're familiar with, and this one is childbirth. Here's what he says happens. When desire and deception get together and are nurtured and allowed to grow, the result will be a birth. He says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And we know from the world of science that not everything that grows is good. Bacteria can be incredibly invasive, harmful, fungus, And so is sin, but it doesn't seem that way at the time. Go ahead and try to reason with a mouse while he's eyeing down the peanut butter. This is not far from the way you and I are when we fixate on something that we want and convinced ourselves we cannot live without, we must have it. There's something so natural and appealing about wanting something and then getting it. There is. But it's important to point out that it's only here when sin enters the picture. So, there's our hope. There's our hope in this process. Sin, if sin doesn't come into the picture until step three, we can conclude that if we could stop this process here or here, we can avoid violating God's commands, violating his standard. And it also tells us that for followers of Jesus... Sin is not simply a reality, it's a choice. It's a choice. Oh, it is a reality that we deal with, but let's not say it's not a choice. It is a choice. We do not have to give in. We do not have to disobey God. We can choose differently, and that's exactly what James is going to help us do in the next few verses. That's exactly where he goes. But before we get there, we need to talk about the fourth step in this life cycle of sin, of temptation here. Desire, deception, disobedience, and lastly, it ends inevitably in death. This is the tragic result of sin. And though it's the farthest thing from our mind when we're staring down temptation, it is the intended result. It is the intended result. James urges us here to look ahead and see where this is going. Please just look down the road a little bit. Just hit the, hit the brakes, pump the brakes and say, where is this likely to take me? But if you're like me, no, 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 we're instinct, action, do it. We don't take the time to slow down and think, what might the result be if I follow through? And what if we did? I remember when Kristen and I were newly married and we had significantly less money than we have now. I mean, I got pulled over for a speeding ticket and it was like $94 or something like that. And that took more than half of what we had at that point. We had just gotten back from our honeymoon and 
you can draw your own conclusions about how well prepared we were, but uh, we just didn't have it, and I spent it uh, because I was cruising down a hill. But in this particular case, I wasn't speeding at all. On the way home from uh, where I was taking classes, I would drive across this bridge over a reservoir, and there's a road that, that goes along this reservoir that I'd never been down before. But we had just recently had some snow, and then some thaw, and then some snow, and then some thaw. It's kind of raining, and it kind of looked really pretty, and I thought, you know, today's the day. I'm just going to take my 1991 Dodge Caravan, well-equipped for off-roading, <laughs> down this road, and just see what this is like, and I did. And what happened was in the thaw and the freeze and the thaw and the freeze and the thaw, um, a little rut was cut through the ice on top of the road, pretty thick. I didn't see it coming, obviously, and I was going down this road slowly, and my front tires went into the rut, and my van started drifting on the ice, just like a figure skater, gracefully right down to the reservoir. My axle, my rear axle caught on a stump. <laughs> the car lurched. My van is tipped like this. And I'm staring down frozen death. I was rescued. And Kristen's words haunt me to this day. What did you think was going to happen? And then my dad's words haunted me after that because my response began with, I didn't think. My dad would always cut me off there. I was like, I didn't think that was going to, oh, stop, stop, stop. There's the point. You didn't think. Okay, dad. That's what happened. And James is just saying, what, what, what do you, where do you think this is going to go? You, you think this is going to be fine? You, oh, I see, I see. Everyone else on the face of the earth gives into temptation and, and unleashes consequences in their lives that they don't want and hurt other people, but you're the exception. Yeah, you're the special one. You can avoid, you can avoid the laws of nature. Yeah, you're, it's not going to happen to you, but that's what we do. You see, sin is never life-giving. It's always life-consuming. It always gives a little to take so much more. And this process was in play when sin first entered the world. Look at Genesis 2.15. God talking to Adam and Eve, the people he created very first. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Let's keep going there. Oh, let's back up one. He gave them one command, please do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, look at all this stuff that she's seeing in this one piece of fruit. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. They saw desire was awakened. Look at what it'll do for me. And food that's designed to be life-giving, ended up resulting in death. Mankind in a moment went from fellowship with God to a broken relationship, which is why you and I all have the same ground zero, born as enemies of God. Rather than obeying his one command, they, out of a desire to be on God's level, were dragged away and enticed. Desire, deception, conceived and gave birth to sin and sin when it is full grown James says gives birth to death their relationship with God was so quickly and obviously broken 
It's important to point out here that at any point before eating the fruit, Adam and Eve could have taken an off-ramp. At any point before trespassing the command, the one command God gave them, they could have taken the off-ramp. They didn't, and you and I often don't either. See, it's, it's, not, it's not what happens to you that determines who you become. What you go through, let's see this, what you go through does not determine who you become. It's not like that. You are not the product of your experiences and your temptations. You are more than your temptations. But I think it's, it's, though it's important to recognize this, it's also important to recognize that how you respond to what you go through will determine who you become. It's your choices. It's whether or not you choose to follow through and give in. But what options are at our disposal? How how do we short-circuit this process if if this is what it's designed to do? What what truth was at Adam and Eve's disposal? What, What did they have to fight with? The weapons that they have to fight with were the same ones that you and I have to fight with. Let's look at what James says in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give birth through the word, give birth, give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And here's what he's saying to us. And here's the third truth about temptation we've got to wrap our minds around. Temptation is overcome by truth. Temptation is overcome by truth. Giving in to temptation involves believing a lie, that this will satisfy me, that this will get me where I want to go. This will make me happy. I deserve this. So if temptation involves, giving in to temptation involves believing a lie, overcoming it must involve the truth. And so he gives them truth. He says, don't be deceived. Don't believe the lie. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. God is not holding out on you. He is not holding on to all this good and just saying, (laughs) I try to survive without it. No, these are gifts. They are coming from God. James wants us to know that he is the author of life. He knows what it means and what it takes for us to flourish, and he is willing to provide us those things. Our role is not to convince God of what's good for us, but to convince ourselves that what God says is good for us truly is good. This is what people of real faith do. That's why James says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. The language here points to the fact that God sends his perfect gifts down continually. He's always doing this. And consistently, he says, he does not change like the shifting shadows. God just does this. So the question is not whether God in his goodness will provide good gifts, but whether we will trust in his goodness. If you need it, God will provide it. When temptation shows you you don't have it but could get it, remind yourself that God is good. If I need this, God will provide it. And I must remind myself that God's blessings are never found outside his boundaries. Never. They're never found there. You can write that down. Take that one to the bank. God's blessings are never found outside his boundaries. James almost sets them up for this because 
right before this section in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed, happy is the one who persevere under trial, under temptation. You make the call. It's the same word. Blessing is awaiting those who persevere. And just as James used a birth picture to warn them about how desire and deception work together, he also used another birth picture to say, this is who you are. Verse 18, he says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. So those who belong to God are meant to walk in truth and overcome sin. Trials and temptations are realities in our lives. We cannot avoid them. We cannot edit them out. But neither do we need to be defined by them. You are not defined by your greatest temptation. Not only will God make us stronger and more mature as we lean into him through our trials, but he can make us victorious as we lean into truth to overcome temptation. Our lives are not shaped by our temptations, but by our responses to them. I'm here, you, I'm here to tell you today there's another bit of good news. Not only can you not, you don't have to be defined by even your responses to temptation, you can be defined by Jesus' response to temptation. He overcame temptation for you, and you can overcome as well. Look at these life-giving words from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has entered heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same kinds of, there's the word, testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. For followers of Jesus, we not only receive help in times of temptation, but we receive a right standing with God that puts us in a position of victory over it. Whereas Adam and Eve brought sin and death, Jesus brings life. But this life is only found when you come to Jesus, admitting your sin, asking him to forgive you and to become the leader of your life. Only then can your life be defined by what Jesus did and not by what you did, because be sure of this, our choices, apart from Jesus, will result in death. But Jesus' choices, by faith, can result in life for you and for me. Jesus is your rescue. So followers of Jesus, please listen to me. Though you can't eliminate all temptation from your life, you sure can stop the process. You can. You don't have to give in. But it's one thing to know that. It's another thing to apply it. So let's just get real practical here. Let me give you four suggestions for overcoming temptation. One, eliminate unnecessary ones. I think sometimes we just don't help ourselves. We surround ourselves with people, with entertainment. We put ourselves in situations where we're bound to fail. Let's knock it off. I think in kids' ministry today, there's some, there's some uh, documents there to equip you, to equip you as parents, equip your kids for dealing with technology. There's uh, cell phones and temptation. There's preventative maintenance. There's emergency procedures. Those resources are available to you for free from our kids' ministry. I'm like, yeah, the kids need it. So do you. So do I. Number two, identify some escape routes. 
Identify some escape routes. Like, come on. If you think you might be getting into a tough situation, think ahead. Where's the off-ramp here? How do I eliminate this? Maybe for you, it's as simple as sending a text. I need you to pray for me right now. Maybe you need to start sharing your location with some people who will look in on you. I don't know what it is, but you need people to help you when, like Odysseus, strapping himself to the hull of the boat and saying, no matter how the siren call sings and sounds, do not let me go over there. Do not, do not go over there. It will result in shipwreck. Number three, run to Jesus for help. Run to Jesus for help. He has all the grace and mercy to help you. Fly to him. And lastly, apply truth. It's a dangerous thing to know so much about God and his word and not do anything with it. Maybe today we need to apply the truth that God is good and gives good gifts. If I need it, he will provide it. I do not need to step outside his boundaries. And if I do, I will not receive his blessings because they're not found out there. I'm here today to tell you you can do it. We can do it. You won't do it alone. We do it together. We do it with the help of Jesus, and we do it with the help of our brothers and sisters who are following Jesus as well. Would you pray with me? God, we need your help to believe that what you say is true, to act like what you say is true, and then when we face temptation, stop and think for a moment where it's likely to head and I pray that you would give us a strong sense of where our choices are taking us and an even stronger sense that you are fighting for us and you've given us the power and strength to do what we need to do in the face of strong temptation following the example and walking in the power of Jesus so we ask you for help we trust that you'll give it if we need it you'll provide it in Jesus name amen